And my father said at the time, a fine arts degree is about as useful as teats on a bull. And if you want to be an artist, go work in an advertising agency. So that's how I started. Um, and then when I was 20, I left New Zealand to be, uh, of all things, creative director of Ogilvy and Mather in Thailand. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. I want to personally thank you for tuning in and supporting our show. If you haven't yet, hit that follow or subscribe button. I encourage you, don't keep this to yourself. Share these inspiring stories with your friends. Invite them to subscribe and connect with us on social media. So today, I have Ross Sutherland as a guest. And I pronounced your name correct, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you mind giving a brief intro of yourself? Not at all. Um, you already know my name. Um, I was born in New Zealand uh, because somebody has to be. Um, yeah. And I left New Zealand when I was 20 to go work overseas uh, for what I thought would be maybe three or four years. Uh, and I've only ever been back since for holidays. So wow. I got horribly sidetracked, Matt. Hey, it happens. It happens. So now what do you kind of, what, like, what are the kind of things that you've kind of done? Um, well, I started off, um, it all began, mate, when I was at school. Um, in New Zealand at the time, the, you could legally leave school when you were 16. I finished what the English would call um, O-levels uh, when I was 14. Um, so I had another year and a bit to go before I could legally leave. So I did a one-year university course at high school okay. um, in fine arts, which I think is the best time I've ever had because I did seven art subjects in English, which is compulsory. So... Um, Everyone else was slaving away over heavy textbooks, and I was doing pottery, painting, illustrating, all sorts of things. Um, and then I got a, um, what do you call it, a scholarship to go to the fine arts um, faculty of Auckland University. And my father said at the time, a fine arts degree is about as useful as teats on a bull. And if you want to be an artist, go work in an advertising agency. So that's how I started. Um, and then when I was 20, I left New Zealand to be, uh, of all things, creative director of Ogilvy and Mather in Thailand. Wow. Yeah, mate, come on. Um, after Thailand, Singapore, after Singapore, Kenya, after Kenya, Hong Kong. And then... Um, Three other creative guys and myself started an agency, our own agency in Hong Kong, uh, with ambitions to be a sort of little hot shop, a boutique, because that was um, fashionable at the time. Uh, but it grew like a weed, mate. And um, in nine months, uh, we went from five people to 70 people. And in a year and a half, we were the third biggest agency in Hong Kong, and Ogilvy and Mather, which most of us came from, bought us. That's interesting. That's and cool. Part of that whole deal was uh, we could pick 
any Ogilvy office around the world we wanted to work in as part of the deal. I chose San Francisco, um, and that's how I came to the States, and I've been here ever since except for two years going back and forth between here and Moscow. Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. So that's yeah. a lot, so we got to dive in. Yeah. Now, okay. what did you want to be in high school? Um. I was a terrible student. I, I hated school. I never did a lick of work. Um, I did the least possible um, amount of effort in um, homework and stuff like that. So when it came time to sit, you know, the exams that let you graduate, my father actually bet me money I wouldn't pass. Um, oh, man. And, yeah. It wasn't a lot. I mean, it was a lot to me at the time. It was like $20. Um, which he grudgingly paid when my name appeared in the um, past. But to yeah. put it in perspective, um, you set five subjects, and so you have a possibility of getting 500 points. Um, fat charts for me, mate. Uh, you're allowed one failing subject, um, so you have to get over 200, basically, to pass. I got 203. Okay. Nice. <laughs> and, and $20. So... Mate, you I passed. Was, it looks like you passed with flying colors. Then I passed. I'm, I'm overwhelming success of the New Zealand education system. Then, yeah. Now, so what do you want to be? So you said school was was tough. What do you want to be in high school? Uh, I had ambitions, I guess, to be some kind of uh, artist, and that's why my pre-university year I did fine arts. Um, but I didn't know why. All I knew was it didn't involve a lot of um, study. Uh, and um, I enjoyed every minute of it. I like painting. I like drawing. I like pottery. I like all sorts of, um, you know, non-academic pursuits. So art seemed to me to be the way to go. But I did not want to be a starving artist in a garret, you know? So you don't want to be a starving artist. So. What did you think of, like, how, what went through your mind? Um, what went through my mind is a very good question. Um, pretty much like my entire uh, academic career at school, nothing went through my mind. Um, but my father's advice was, well, why don't you, uh, at least at your age, 16 at the time, try commercial art? So I went and got a job at an advertising agency. You know, I was just the general dog's body. They made me do everything that kept more experienced senior people out of the pub. Um, you know, I'd be there late at night washing their brushes and tidying up their desks. But that's how I got started in advertising. Okay, nice. So you did a lot of the grunt work. And now how did you sort of move up? Uh, I met a, there were At the time, mate, there were no international agencies in New Zealand. And I met a guy who ran what was probably the best New Zealand agency at the time. Uh, he hired me, and then when Ogilvy and Mather um, opened up in New Zealand, he actually called them and said, you got to hire this guy. Uh, I can't give him everything that he probably, well, I, I don't know what he said, but it was pretty yeah. much like he said to me, you've got to move on, you've got to go overseas, New Zealand is little, uh, it's a small landscape, it's a small population go get some overseas experience. So that's how I ended up going to Thailand, mate. 
and I arrived the day the departing, let's call them fleeing, military government were machine-gunning students in the streets. Wow, so that's a rough time. It's a little different from New Zealand, yeah, where where we don't d- tend not to do that, you know. But yeah. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I mean, you know, when you step off the plane and you almost pass out because of the heat, uh, how exotic it was, how foreign it was. I mean, New Zealand is a long way away from everything, mate, and it's yeah. a bit of a bubble. So to see sort of um, temples with gold roofs and people on elephants, to me, was just the most amazing thing. And I can remember thinking to myself, I'm never leaving. I love it here. Yeah. Now, how did you upskill? So in terms of now, what was your job there and how did you kind of move up? And what skills did you gain? It's a good question. Uh, I was um, creative director of the agency. It wasn't terribly big. Um, I mean, this is going to sound like a LinkedIn post, uh, boastful, uh, but it turns out that I, I'm quite good at art directing and writing. Uh, and so some of the ads we produced for some of the clients in Thailand drew the attention of others other clients, uh, and the agency grew in leaps and bounds. I came to the attention of David Ogilvy because of the success of uh, the agency. I'm not taking credit for it, mate. I was um, kind of towed along in the wake of that, like a manatee floating into propellers, you know. Uh, So once Thailand was uh, well-established and I think the biggest uh, agency in the kingdom at the time, Ogilvy and Mather moved me to Singapore. That turned out to be pretty good. Uh, and then uh, I went to Kenya. It was interesting. Uh, and then when I came back, uh, I went to Hong Kong, and that's when my friends and I started our own agency. Okay. Wow. So why did you want to start your own agency? Um, well, the simple truth of the matter is Ogilvy and Mather put a managing director into Hong Kong who was a thoroughgoing idiot. Mm. Um, he was British, which to most New Zealanders is a red flag. But it was at that time when the UK pension system was based on your last two years' salary. So they were doing him a favour, but as it turns out, they were doing us a great disfavour. And it became intolerable, and we thought, we're young, we're overseas, let's give it a go. And as I said, it was stupidly successful. And again, blind luck, mate. I mean, I'm not saying we did anything brilliant. We just stuck to our guns, uh, wrote good headlines, art directed well. I mean. Nice. Now, how do you feel getting successful? Like, you're like, wow, like, I'm moving up, things are happening. Uh It has its moments. It also is fraught with danger. You know, you can become way too big for your boots, um, which we all did, by the way. Um, But, yeah, it felt good. And uh, why wouldn't it? We were making uh, an obscene amount of money at the time. Um, We started a few uh, interesting side ventures. Um, 
At the time, the big cause celeb in Hong Kong was the Vietnamese boat people. Um, a lot of those children were disenfranchised. We started a comedy club um, solely to um, sponsor Vietnamese orphans. Um, and that was all agency people from every other agency in Hong Kong. Uh, all of the restaurants paid for our lunches and um, or provided the food and, and um, an inordinate amount of beverage. And we all paid a sort of turn-up fee and all that money and everything we raised from various sponsorship events uh, went to support um, children amongst the Vietnamese boat people. So, you know, at the same time, we had big heads and thought we were like walked on water. We were also doing something a little useful. Now, what came next? Uh, where am I? I'm in Hong Kong. Um, then I went to Singapore uh, two years. Then I went to Kenya, um, which was, what would the word be? Um, challenging. Because you had to forget everything that you thought was good. Uh, one of the clients in Kenya was running a competition. And what should the prize be? And I'm saying things like maybe a, a return trip for two to Fiji. And they went, no, nobody. So in, in, in the end, the prize was two cows. Wow. Okay. Which is how wealth is measured in Kenya, you know. But we did some really interesting things. Uh, and it just taught me that... Uh, you know, you have to react entirely to where you are at the time. One of our biggest uh, clients in Kenya was Shell Chemicals, agricultural chemicals. And then we noticed that a lot of the people were actually making clothes out of the um, sacks, for want of a better word, the chemicals came in. So the guys working with at the time said, we should print those sacks in fabric patterns. So, you know... Shell chemicals suddenly went out in paisley and polka dots and because people repurposed them as clothing. That's like wow. right? something that I've never been able to recreate anywhere else in the world because it just doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. So I always loved that. I always loved the idea of um, like live in the moment and find out what is going on amongst the people you are supposedly talking to, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, that's interesting. It's like, that's something I would never think of, but people get creative and culture plays a big factor. But I think that's what this whole business is, you know, and that is something uh, that had I gone uh, the fine arts route and done that, the, the remaining three years of that degree, I don't think they would ever have said, if you're ever in Kenya, make sure the chemical sacks are printed in floral patterns, you know? Yeah. They're more likely to, you know, talk about Michelangelo's dietary habits or something completely useless. So, yeah. Nah. So now what came next? I uh, came to America, uh, worked for Hal Reine in San Francisco. Hal Reine then quit Ogilvy and Mather to start his own agency. My green card was, application was dependent on... Um, Ogilvy, San Francisco. So when that dissolved, because Hal stole the agency, I, I moved to New York. Oh, okay. What Where, happened? as luck would have it, I was reunited with uh, two of the other guys uh, that started the agency with me in Hong Kong. Wow. So how did this agency go? 
Well, this was Ogilvy and Mates in New York, so oh, it, okay. it, it, it went pretty well. Um, and then I left uh, Ogilvy after, I think, a total of 25 years to go work at um, Young and Rubicum when Sir Martin Sorrell added that to his list of agencies. Wow. So this is another agency. So did anything exciting happen at this one? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was an enormous agency, YNR, and it was privately owned until um, Sir Martin bought it. Um, and I met the then um, chief creative officer, a guy called Jim Ferguson, a Texan, who announced his arrival in New York by riding a horse down Madison Avenue. It's pretty cool. Wow. Um, but yeah, we had a great time there. Uh, and after that, uh, when my time was up there, I started freelancing. And here's where the degree thing comes in, mate. And this is okay. the re- this is the real story. A guy that I'd worked with at Ogilvy and Mather was running a group of agencies in Russia that were um, owned by an oligarch. And these were agencies like Lowe, McCann, et cetera, et cetera, who didn't want to invest in a footprint in Russia, so they gave him the right to operate um, with their name. His deal in return was to give them 25% of the profit he made. But he's Russian, so I don't think he was always completely honest about the profit he made. In return, he got access to all their learning. So I went over there only to do a new business pitch, um, which uh, was for the biggest telecom company there called Beeline. Uh, We won that pitch, which turned out to be the biggest um, account gain in Russian advertising history. Again, nobody cares, uh, except he did. Uh, So then he offered me a full-time job in Russia. Like, no, no, so not for me, mate. Honestly, I like it. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, but if we can work out a deal where I can go back and forth between Moscow and New York, count me in, which is what I did for like almost two and a half years. I used to do six weeks there, two weeks back here. Back I'd go. But in order to get a work permit, I needed a degree. Oh, the plot thins. Uh, So they said, do you have a copy of your degree? I went, no, but but I have Photoshop, you know. And they went, oh, no, 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 we mustn't do anything like that. We'll just buy you one. Oh, wow. So I ended up uh, with a degree uh, which I did not earn in a language I did not speak from a university in Kiev. In of all things, mathematics, which I still can't master. That's funny. But it was bought and paid for, $1,500, mate. The diploma, the transcripts, everything. So when my kids, it came time for them to choose what um, college or university they were going to go to, I went, hey, looking at the fee schedule and whatever, I went, is it okay? What? why don't you just get a job and I'll buy you a degree? No, they didn't take me up on it. So. Oh, man, they, they should have. They really should have, you know, because the, um, my son, um, 
started out his uh, life and career as a chef and opted not to go to culinary school but to start working on the line, which put him way ahead of the game after four years. Um, My oldest daughter uh, got a a Bachelor of Science from FIT, uh, Fashion Institute, uh, here in New York. My youngest daughter wants to be an interior decorator. I'm going, let me just get you a degree and go help people pick a painting that goes with their couch, you know. But anyway, my daughter's graduated. My son is no longer a chef, so thank God he didn't waste all that time at culinary school. Um, He decided, like a lot of people who work in kitchens, that it was a brutal job. None of the tips found their way back into the engine room. Um, And he took up... uh, he took a couple of years off and did an apprenticeship uh, with a with a stonemason. Oh, smart move! Um, and now he builds dry stone walls and does beautiful stonework and could not be happier. I should have him on the podcast. You should. Yeah, let me know. Let's let's make it happen. So yeah. now, looking back at your career, well, are you well? Are we still done with your career? Or you still got more. You got more of the backstory. Uh, I think that brings us pretty much up to date, except now, you know, um, uh, I did join um, HP, Hewlett Packard, as global head of brand. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. Fantastic title, mate. Um, That is a fantastic title. Anything that has global in it is usually good. Yeah, you can stick it in front of anything these days, can't you? Global Gourmet, your local supermarket. and that was for like three years, but culturally not the best fit. You know, it's uh, you're too creative for something like that. Well, it's a wonderful company, and the people are super nice, but everything's pretty much done by consensus. Yeah, and that's tough. Well, it's tough for me, mate. I mean, I've always thought that you know, um, a camel is basically a racehorse that's being created by a committee. So yeah. Uh, look, I like that definition of a camel. Okay. So now kind of looking back, what would you say are the things you did right that caused you to sort of move up and become better at what you do? Practice, not theory, right? Uh, when I first, for example, got to um, Thailand and Singapore, there were no copywriters, uh, no European copywriters on staff. So we couldn't afford to hire one. So I went, ah, shit, how hard can it be? So I started writing copy. And now I freelance as either a copywriter or an art director or a package designer. And it's all trial and error, mate, you know? I look back on some of the first package designs I ever did and I can't stand the way they look but they were my first efforts and now I'm much better and I'm now much better at writing and now I'm much better at art direction. Was there anything that like made you significantly better? Was there a period of time where you felt like you gained the most amount of skill? Yes. I I think if I could pin that down, two things, if if I'm allowed to, one was I kind of got adopted by David Ogilvy. Uh, I came to his attention first in Thailand and, I was, app- I was appointed to his global 
that word again, uh, creative council. I was 26 at the time. Uh, and the other 10 creative directors on that council all wore clothes older than that, you know? And we used to meet um, sometimes at his chateau in France, sometimes somewhere else in France. But I learned so much from him, and it was about, you know, the discipline of um, research, convincing clients that what they want to say and what consumers want to hear are most often two completely different things. There's a, I went to a new business presentation with David when I was in New York, and there were like 11 people sitting in one of those U-shaped desks. And the guy said, who, the consultant who was running the pitch um, said, uh, Mr. Ogilvy, uh, these gentlemen are all from the client corporation. You have 20 minutes to make your case. It will be a hard stop. And at the end, I will ring the bell, in which case you must cease immediately. And, and we're still unpacking stuff. Now. And David went, how many of the 11 people have to approve the ads? And the consultant said, um, all of them. And David said, then ring the fucking bell and walked out. Mm. So I went, okay, so here's two things I take from that. One, we did a lot of work. We never got to show anyone. Doesn't matter. Uh, but that man had some principles. And he believed very strongly in what he was able to bring to the party. And he stuck up for it with the zeal of a missionary, you know? So ooh, make a little mental note of that. That's very important because I know you can't really get 11 people to agree on anything. You can't even get 11 people to agree, agree that the sky is blue, right? You know? No, no. So. And, you know, the other thing I learned, um, probably too late in life, to tell you the truth, is that a fact is an opinion held by a client. Mm, I like that. You know, no, it's back to your sky is blue. No, the sky is green. No, it's blue. Not as far as I'm concerned. Yes, yes, green it is then, you know. So uh, whilst David um, had the ability to... Um, stick up for what he believed in, you know, when you're uh, younger and not as financially secure and when you don't own a chateau in France, um, sometimes you have to, like, agree the sky's green and move yeah. on. Yeah. Nothing you can do about that. Um, no amount of learning or scholarly stuff can teach you how to cope with that. That's a personal decision. Yeah. No, and it definitely helps to put yourself in a position where you can afford to lose the deal. That would be nice. I mean, if I have one regret in life, honestly, it's that I did not choose my parents carefully enough. I could be heir to the Guinness fortune, uh, but I'm not. So, so I have to do ads, mate. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. No, nothing now, wrong with it at all. Now, kind of looking back, so those are the things you did right. What would you say are some of the mistakes you've made? Hmm. How long have we got? We've got time. Oh, damn. Um, well, arrogance. It's a bad, bad quality. Um, an overabundance of ambition. And 
And I think a lot of people who I still am friends with would say I can be a little difficult to work with from time to time. That's an historical criticism because now I'm not difficult. I have learned to um, talk to myself about what I really believe in. So I don't do it on Zoom calls or conference calls or, you know. You know, it's like all those people that go, well, uh, welcome to this roundtable brainstorming session. There's no such thing as a bad idea. And I would like to go, well, there's one right there. And, I mean, there was a time where I'd say that out loud. So some of the biggest, uh, I think my biggest mistake um, career-wise was um, I would say out loud what most people were barely comfortable thinking. Mm. And again, that goes back to like I enjoyed an unprecedented amount of success and it made me arrogant and a pain in the bum, really. No, I mean, it's good that you kind of learn. I think we all live and we learn. Now, how would you say the industry has changed over time? The internet has made a huge difference. I saw an advertisement uh, or a, a recruitment ad going wanted we are uh, a digital copywriter. You're like, what on earth is a digital copywriter? Is that like a wee guy made entirely out of pixels? Um, and if, for example, you had discovered a cure for cancer and you wanted solely to announce it uh, on the internet, why would you need somebody special to write cancer cured, you know? Yeah. So I think that whole thing has changed. Uh, the most significant change is uh, the open um, prejudice of ageism. Um, uh, I think advertising used to worship, advertising agencies or the industry used to worship at the altar of talent, and now they worship at the altar of youth which seems to me to be counterproductive because um, take Americans, for example, I don't know what the latest number is. I think only 40% of Americans have a passport. Wow, that's crazy. Which means 60% have never traveled outside of the United States. Um, and the number's probably higher the younger you go. So I don't know how you can write something um, or unearth any kind of insight unless you've been exposed to more insight than you already have. Yeah. Which could come from France. It could come from Bangladesh or India or, you know, doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Um, Ideas come from everywhere. Well, yeah, but inspiration comes from everywhere. You yeah. know? Um, but unless you're exposed to it, you'd never know, would you? You never know. And it, it's just something different when you go travel into a different country and you get off the plane and you just feel different, right? Like that. Totally. And you find out what's important to people in those countries, which which differs wildly, you know? I mean, it's like that great thing, you know, if you meet somebody here, they go, how are you? In a lot of Asian countries, their first question is, have you eaten? That's a completely different mindset. Yeah, it is. It is. And I know, like, I speak to a lot of people on Twitter and they say, I trust you are well. Yeah. Right? You know, just the, that's just the way they talk. Yep. So, you know, I mean, if I had um, uh, any uh, 
piece of advice worth anything, man, I would go travel, travel always. See as much of the world as you can, as often as you can. Because it's about perspective. It's not about the Eiffel Tower or the difference in food markets in Barcelona and London. It's about like the way people are and what makes them tick. Most of which can be applied back home, you know, wherever home is. What was something that blew your mind when you traveled? Hmm, so many things. Um, you don't have to say one, you could go on. I never, ever encountered any form of racism um, in Asia. But I did witness a lot of, I don't know, what's the word, misogyny. Right? Yeah. Uh, where women were plainly treated at a level below the salt. But some of the things that blow my mind um, is how some races don't take themselves terribly seriously. So they have the ability to laugh at themselves. The English are particularly good at this. Uh, but then there's a lot to laugh about, isn't there? With um, <laughs> uh, but at least they recognize it in themselves. Um, so just the whole diversity of cultures and what was the pecking order of importance in those uh, one of the things that uh, I, I will never forget is uh, was in Thailand. It was a, uh, a warehouse where they stored rice and there was a big chute and the rice went down the chute into the back of a truck. Okay. Underneath the truck were kids with bowls because some of the rice would fall through the cracks in the um, yeah. bed of the truck. I went, shit, see, that's what it is. You know, you've got like the, I'm sure he wasn't, but the sort of cliched fat uh, rice merchant standing yeah. uh, and the kids underneath with their bowls. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like that everywhere. There's uh, a lot of inequality. And again, what's, I've always thought that advertising is a pretty simple business, you know. The person you're appealing to has, a dollar, ten dollars, doesn't matter, and you have a product. So what is it about what you're advertising? They want more than their own money. And it's hardly ever what you think or it's hardly ever what the client thinks. So, I mean, I still, you know, I should probably just retire, but I'm terrified of um, withering on the vine. You know, what am I going to do? I, I don't like fishing unless the fish are basically jumping into the boat. Um, I don't want to sit out uh, in plain air and paint mountains and trees. So the only thing that interests me now is doing something where I can uh, give back. I have this little plan where I would like to start some kind of, um, <sighs> school's not the right word, but uh, for um, young emerging artists, something like that. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, I know you'd be a great mentor. Oh, I don't know if that's true, but it would make me happy. So, you know, everyone else has to take their chances, mate. Yeah, they do, they do. So what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? Uh, probably my children. Honestly, I know that's like a diabolical cliche, but hey, desperate times call for desperate cliches. I used to think it was uh, silly stuff like uh, 
turning around the fortunes of Jaguar cars in America. We had one year. They sold when we first got the Jaguar business. They sold twelve thousand cars a year. Like I think Toyota probably sold twelve thousand a minute. You know, and uh, Jaguar was fed up with pouring money into um, a losing proposition, and they said if we don't get the sales up to twenty thousand in a year, they're going to close the company down. Um, and we managed to do it. So is that an accomplishment? We thought so at the time, but no, not really. Again, it was just a matter of like tapping into the right mindset. And I had always thought that, well, the guy I worked with at the time had said, you know, uh, everyone who will probably buy a Jaguar thinks he's like James Bond. I went, no, we ridiculous. You know, anyone who buys a Jaguar has the word idiot stamped on their head because they weren't terribly reliable. But if you have had a life where, you know, you were the last kid picked on the basketball team or, you know, badly let down by a, a girlfriend at school, Jaguar is your only spiritual compensation, you know. It's the one car you might want to drive back to your school reunion. Um, that was his insight. And that's all of our ads were based on that. I mean, the first one we ever did, um, I think the headline was, because you'll never make love to an enemy agent on the Orient Express. You know? And it was just a different way of talking to people instead of saying, you know, British luxury and leather and wood but really leather and wood like motor oil and repair bills is really what jaguars were about you know so stuff like that but i mean i used to think at the time it was a huge accomplishment but now i went why well, it's just being smart or doing your homework or finding out how to pull the right trigger you know excuse me my uh, diet coke no hey look nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with that now, I'm going to ask a slightly different way. What would you say you're most proud of? Honestly, it's not something I ever did other than how I did it. Um, I think I'm most proud of uh, having, not that I've ever done it, but if I had to take one of those like stupid Facebook, you know, one point for every country you've been to, you know? Yeah. Um, Seen and done a lot. Some good, some bad. But people go, ooh, what would you do differently? And I go, honestly, nothing. Well, what about the mistakes? No, I'd, I'd make those all over again because at the time, they weren't mistakes, mate. It was a folly. It was an error in judgment. You can call it what you like, but... So... I guess if I had to put it in a single sentence, um, I'm most proud of the fact that I will never be on my deathbed and have to say something like, oh, I never really lived. Oh, I should have spent more time at the office or whatever. But I like the no prisoners, no apologies lifestyle. You know? Do we make mistakes? Yeah. Some of them fatal? Yeah. Some of them costly? Yeah. But at least... There's a bit of oomph there, you know? What would you say is the hardest period of your life? 
Like, what was the hardest thing you ever went through? Now, absolutely now. It's a brilliant question, mate. Um, I have probably never been better at what I do than I am now. But I'm old. Um, and so it's really, really hard um, to get the kind of work I know I can do really well because of that sort of bias. So is it the hardest period of my life? Yeah. Very happy to see my kids uh, grown up and uh, doing well and uh, having fun and meeting boys um, for the girls uh, and all of that stuff. But for me personally, it's like, shit, I can do that. I can do it quicker. I can do it for less money. What's the problem? Problem is gray hair and it's true. Yeah, unfortunately, it is a big truth. Yeah, in it's the totally industry. true. And nothing you can do about it. A daughter said, why don't you dye your hair? I went, oh, that's so sad, man. That's like, you know, like the end scene from that movie, Death and Venice, you know, with the black hair and the dye running down the guy's face. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, nah, not for me, man. No, nah, not for you. I mean, look, people who truly understand will hopefully find you you know what they do or they don't it's one of those things like again having done what i've done it is what it is if it happens great if it doesn't equally great doesn't pay as well yeah but it's still it's, it's just the way it is man i mean i'm not yeah not on the war path about it yeah have you ever felt insecure about not having a degree No, in fact, I feel decidedly superior. But don't get me wrong. I want, if I need surgery, I really, really want my surgeon to have a degree. Yeah. I'm glad that the engineer that uh, designed the building I'm living in had a degree, so it won't fall down. Uh, so I think, depending on what it is that you want to do, a degree is totally necessary. And... Uh, Totally valid. I think an arts degree, for example, uh, puts you well behind the eight ball for the rest of your life. I read something this morning in preparation um, that people who even have basic degrees in what we'll call what vocations, nursing, for example, uh, having a degree in something like that will earn you about half a million dollars more over a lifetime. Uh, than not having one because it's a vocation. Yeah. Uh, having an arts degree will earn you considerably less because you will never make up the four years uh, that you spent getting it. Mm, that's good to know. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I can send you a link to that article that I read. Um, yeah, send it over. I would love to share it. Yeah, and I mean, I, again, mate, it's horses for courses, you know? Um If somebody has a very clear idea of what it is they want to do and that profession can only be executed with a degree, by all means, get a degree. But if you want to write ads for low-fat yogurt, why? Or when in desperate straits, I just can buy one from Russia. Everything is for sale. Uh, I love the way you think. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? 
maybe 16. Maybe you want to give it to a 16-year-old self. What advice would you give? If you met him right now and he's living in 2022, what would you tell him? Uh, I would. The first thing I'd tell him is don't um, go out on a date with Mary Kilgar. That would be the first thing I'd tell myself because that was fucking horrible. Um, <laughs> I think I gave myself that advice, actually. it's uh, It was basically, do I want to leave the security of home life, for example, uh, or the comfortable life in New Zealand? Do I want to give up playing rugby to go to Thailand? Do I want to do all this? And the advice I gave myself was, hell yeah. And, and I think you can bankroll that into do everything eccentric and dangerous when you're young because you never will when you're old. I mean, I feel like you could do some eccentric things still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've had practice, mate, you see. Oh, I see, I see. But, you know, a lot of people wait too long um, to do stuff. And then it's, it's dull. There's no sense of adventure left. It's like, we're all going to Paris to see the Eiffel Tower. That's by rote, you know. Better off being uh, younger and living in Montmartre than staying in the Hazlitt Hotel at the top of the Spanish Steps in Rome because you can afford to, you know. There's no joy in that. Thank you for sharing your story. Is there something you want to share that you haven't shared already? No, not for public uh, discourse. No. All right. So people have to get those behind the scenes. Behind. Now, how would people support you? How would people connect with you? Uh, I, I don't know. LinkedIn? Your, yeah. What do you want? My phone number? Um, no, I guess LinkedIn is fine. LinkedIn's fine. I mean, I've never... LinkedIn to me has become um, a sort of Facebook for um, pretentious wankers, you know? It is, it is, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm so proud. Oh, no, actually, it's never a proud. I'm so humbled yeah. to, to have been chosen for the jury to judge the best small space ad by the Michigan Ad Club. Like, oh, shut up. You know, I hate that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I've always got my hands poised above the keypad like javelins going, nobody gives a shit, but I never do anymore. Yeah, yeah. Those days are long gone, man. Now I just go, oh, that's nice. Scroll, next post. scroll, next. scroll, scroll. Next post, next post. Mm. No, that that's cool. So thank you so much for your time. It was great. You're very welcome, your, man. Hearing your perspective. I hope you enjoyed sharing your story. And I wish you the best of luck. And I hope people realize the true talent that you bring and they use you for amazing ads. Well, that's so sweet of you. And I'll uh, cut you in for 25%, man. Uh, hey, look, I'll take two. And that's the uh, Russian 25%. So like, <laughs> say 3%, really. You know what? I need to go buy a PhD now. So let me add something else. Well, you just uh, email me, mate. and I'll hook you up with the guy who bought my degree for me. All right. Thank you so much for your time. All right, mate. A pleasure talking to you. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. 
on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com.